Welcome everyone. As we go to the sermon this morning, it's an interesting contrast with some of the things that are being claimed. We talked about in Sunday school. Today we're, we're in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 11, 13. I've entitled this, Present Dishonor for the Apostles. So I'll read the text. The, first, the next slide has the entire text. I'll explain why I want to go to that slide now and then uh, read it here and see what is uh, encouraged and emphasized. 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13, from the Lexham English Bible. Excuse me, I did that wrong. I remember to start the timer, then I forgot I thought I didn't start the timer. Here we go. 1 Corinthians 4, 11 through 13, Lexham English Bible. <laughs> Until the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless, and we toil working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. When we are persecuted, we encourage. We have become like the refuge of the world, the offscouring of all things until now. Now, the reason I wanted a slide with the whole text before we break out the verses in and uh, expound each of them was notice I highlighted in red until the present hour, until now. Now, the reason that's important is it's a like bracketed section. And the reason this is bracketed, these statements about Paul and the other apostles, is that this is in stark contrast to what we saw in the passages from last week. And that is the Corinthian church, where Paul had preached and taught for a year and a half, which was a significant amount of time during his missionary travels, and who had brought the gospel to that church, had become factious and became those who were following one preacher or another based on what they liked. And they became interested in status and false judgments. And so when you see the irony of what they believe themselves to be in their own mind, you can see that Paul and the other apostles were in kind of bad shape in their minds. But they brought the gospel. So remember the until now. That's the brackets. They don't have the already status claimed by the Corinthians. And if you look at the list, this is not exactly what the Corinthians would be, full, rich, and already reigning as kings. Here's the apostles. Let's pray. Thank you, dear Lord, for your goodness and kindness. We pray for a love for your truth, a hunger to learn it, and boldness to proclaim it. And may we learn from your word and by your grace live lives that would show that you are keeping your promises and changing us and giving us eternal hope through your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. So let's look at this idea of dishonor for the apostles. I mentioned that last week. 1 Corinthians 4, 11. 
until the present hour, we are both hungry and thirsty and poorly clothed and roughly treated and homeless. Now, that makes sense. Depending on our background and what we value, that may not sound so bad. And in some circles of Christendom, that would be something that we consider good. But in other cases, uh, it would be looked down upon. But what we're interested in was the value system of the Corinthian church that Paul was writing to correct. That will give us the idea of what he's talking about. In their minds, their would-be status was splendor, as we saw in 1 Corinthians 4.10. And in 4.8, they were already filled, rich, and reigning. Now, there's some irony there. Let me read that text for those of you who didn't hear last week's sermon. For first, uh, 1 Corinthians 4, 8a and 10b. You are already full. You are already rich. You've begun to reign as kings without us. And then 10b, you are distinguished, but we are dishonored. And I mentioned last week that the word for distinguished in doxos would be in splendor. In glorious splendor. So in their minds, their favorite teachers that were obviously harming them, as we'll see later when we go further into Corinthians, because they'd heard a lot of bad things and believed them. In their minds, they're the glorious ones, or at least their favorite teachers are ones who promise that. And look at the list for the apostles. Look at what it was like for the one who brought in the gospel. This is not a very favorable-looking list. So the rich, reigning, splendorous people they would emulate are being compared to thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, homeless. There's nothing in this list which would make the worldly-minded envious. Have you ever heard the phrase, the missionary is the message? We've all heard that. That's very misleading. Now, if all it means is the missionary believes the Word of God and trusts Christ, It serves Christ and has the message of the gospel. And the missionary may be a lot of different ways because Christians aren't all identical, either in gifting, outward appearance, circumstances, where they live, where they work from. That varies a lot. But in anything we might look at, there's somebody in the world who would be as like what we think the missionary would be like. Or it would be different. You can't look at different humans and decide what the gospel is. You'll be misled. Paul said we do not preach ourselves. And so that's not an accurate statement. The missionary, the pastor, the preacher, the elder, the Christian, the Sunday school worker, anyone, is not the message. The message is Jesus Christ and his work of grace to bring salvation to undeserving sinners. And so if this is the state, which you can see uh, elsewhere, 
I'll allude to something later, very accurate about Paul's situation. So if you come to a culture that looks at that as failure, then why listen to Paul? He's obviously a failure. But he didn't come preaching, Paul, look at me, you all wish you were like me. He didn't say that other than being saved. He said to Agrippa, I wish you were like me, only not in these changes, meaning having faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to cite a scholar here, a different one this time. It's amazing. When I started studying 1 Corinthians to teach it, at first I had very few resources that could help me understand the context. And then Gordon Fee's commentary came out, 86, 87, and since then, now I have five great resources, and I feel like I'm blessed with riches. And it's becoming more clear because the same ideas are seen by all these different scholars from different situations. Dr. Gardner says this, The suffering is not some temporary phase that apostles grow out of as they become more spiritual, in quotes. Rather, even as he writes, he and others among them are experiencing suffering for the sake of Christ. Then I put in some ellipses to, to keep this a little briefer. Here, Gardner says, Paul puts together all the sufferings that are related to his life as an apostle. In other words, he does not distinguish between grades of suffering. For example, the beatings are not more significant than having to work for his own support. He describes the general unpleasantness of life that distinguishes him from the well-honored citizen of Corinth who would not be beaten and would not have to work with his own hands. So in other words, in their world, being beaten and having to work with your own hands proves that you're not honored. You're not an honorable citizen. We view you as one who is obviously in dishonor. Despite the fact Paul brought them the message of Jesus Christ in whom many believed, and those who believe, whether they get this totally in their minds that he's writing, hoping they will, those who believe are looking forward to honor and glory we've never seen. And it's not a subsection of this world. It's not some in this world who have something the rest of us miss. It's something promised to all who believe. And it's an eternal honor and glory beyond all comparison. The more I studied this, this last week and went over a number of times, it's amazing that faith believes something promised in the Bible. We have reason to believe because the historical facts as they're laid out in the Bible are confirmed in history. The places exist. The people existed. The accuracy is there to see. These aren't cleverly devised fables. But to believe what we are to believe is going to be in faith that God really raised Jesus from the dead and what he promised will happen. And so those who say, well, I'm a person of faith, and you can tell, look at me. 
Well, did Paul say that? Not by their standards, but he can say it because he believes what Christ told him. Roughly treated uh, is a Greek word, kalafitso, uh, which was used about Paul's thorn in the flesh. I told you I'd mention this. In 2 Corinthians 12, 7, you want to just jot this down. I'll read it to you. 2 Corinthians 12, 7, Paul said, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason, to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. There's that same word. It means to be beaten uh, and so on to keep me from exalting myself. The same word is also used in Matthew twenty six sixty seven about Jesus on the cross. They spat on his face and beat him with their fists, and others slapped him. So what point this is, is dishonor in the eyes of the worldly-minded. And so if we think that people are just going to notice us going about ordinary life. We don't want to give offense, needless offense to anybody. And it's very easy to do so. I've done so many times. I need to not do that. I need to be courteous, kind, gracious, do my work, and things like that. But we don't want people to just look at us going around and say, okay, now I want to be a Christian. That would never happen with Paul. They became Christians because of his preaching, not what he looked like in the eyes of the world. Does that make sense? I sure hope so. So uh, can be roughly treated, can be translated, knocked about. Now, if you live long enough, eventually you get knocked about. I can testify to that. And I'm not saying I'm the oldest one here. But um, I think a lot of us know life beats you up a lot as you go through it. Let's go to verse 12, 1 Corinthians four twelve, And we toil, working with our own hands. When we are reviled, we bless. And when we are persecuted, we are endure. So the apostles, Paul and others, who had true apostolic status, uh, and we know Paul did. He, he was a tent maker. He worked with his hands. And the reviling, the persecution, and so on was very common. So the reviled there is another thing that happens to people who serve Christ. I have a point on the slide here. Manual labor meant low social standing in the Greek culture. Now, that's not true in every culture that ever existed. There are cultures, uh, uh, in some ways ours used to be this way, um, would reward hard work. And whatever sort of work, if it was done diligently, that's an honorable thing. And I believe that. But the elite in Corinth didn't look at it that way. That That kind of hard work was for people beneath us. But Paul um, worked with his hands, and he wasn't going to find standing that way. He didn't build a big cathedral with a gold throne to sit on to claim status. 
you know, isn't it absurd that Christendom has cathedrals with thrones and the like and people sitting on them claiming to be Christian and that's where they get their status? But it's actually an offense to the gospel because it's claiming that we're reigning as kings now, which we are not. To bless and endure is the opposite of bringing rep of looking for retribution on enemies. Now, this word bless, eulogio, I have it here. We can recognize that in English we use the word eulogy. And what that would mean typically in English would be if we're honoring someone who is passed and we have a funeral, the eulogy would describe something honorable about the person's life. That's typically what's done. Now, in the Bible, in the Old Testament, this is called barakah, blessing. Now, the greatest blessing type literature in the Old Testament was to bless God for his glorious deeds. So when I preached through Ephesians, we saw that Ephesians 1, 1 through 13 or 14 was blessing, a, a eulogy, a eulogetas, a blessing God for his mighty deeds of salvation. Now, in this context, to bless is not to, is the opposite of seeing how many bad things we could say about our enemies. And we'll deal with this a little bit in a later slide. So let's look at this working with our hands. What sort of a value is there of that according to the Bible? You would want to jot this one down, Proverbs 16.26. Proverbs 16, 26. A worker's appetite works for him, for his hunger urges him on. That's good. That's wisdom. A worker's appetite works for him. Now, many have looked at what's going on out in our world, and there's all, a lot of money showed up in a lot of people's um, hands who haven't really worked, and we hear that all the time about growing up in a family and you uh, play video games in the basement until you're 30 or 40. I don't want to be stereotypical. But if you have no hunger, you don't have a lot of motivation. If you're going to have everything you want and you do nothing, the motivation goes away. Now, why is that? Because we live in a fallen world. There are a few people self-motivated. But in the world of the honor-shame culture of the wealthy in the uh, system that they were talking about in Corinth, it was dishonorable be, to be the one who had to do the work. But in the Old Testament, work was honorable. And I believe that, by the way. And it's also that way for the church, for Christians. Whatever else happens, we can show up Wherever we have responsibilities, whether in the church or in, in a workplace, and be the one who shows up and gets the job done. That's honorable. Now, to be in a situation where, oh, I don't ever have to do anything, it's rare, but it's not the goal of life. Now, it's, I'll just, just jot this down. I'll save some time. Acts 18, 1 through 4, jot, jot it down. And it says in verse 3 that he was of the same trade 
of Aquila uh, Priscilla, and they were working, and they had the trade of tent makers. So the early Christians were workers, and they took care of their business, and they thought that was honorable. So I have some more contrast coming up. By the way, as we've been talking about some things in Sunday school, if you look at the, the list and the things that Paul said about himself, and you think about kingdom now theology, those who say, we're going to have dominion, we're going to have it, we're going to do it, we're going to get it, we're going to speak it, and this is it, they would throw Paul right out of their meeting. They would, because it's the opposite. Look at you. You are the apostle of Christ who he appeared to and who he appointed and who he taught, and this is what you got? Well, let's, what was it again? Hungry, thirsty, poorly clothed, roughly treated, toiling, reviled, persecuted. Wow. He's got it. He's got the dominion message right here, right now. No, that's, it's just, it really grieves my heart when I see Christians adopting the worldly ideas and thinking that's what's needed for the message of Jesus Christ to pierce the hearts of hardened sinners like I was and convict us and show hope through the forgiveness of sins. That's an important one. By the way, don't forget this. Whatever you listen to, if you hear hours and hours of teachings, whatever meetings, whatever it may be, if you never hear about forgiveness of sins done once for all to those who turn to Jesus Christ, you're being given a faulty message. I can tell you that from personal experience, having gone to some really big meetings with thousands of workers from all around the world who were there to have some grand reformation and not a word was spoken to anyone about forgiveness of sins. What does it profit a person to gain the whole world and lose itself? Nothing. So the worldly-minded really are not going to like the biblical message. So kingdom now really doesn't work, other than people being added to the kingdom one by one when they're converted, their sins are forgiven, and they're put into the building, the foundation of which is Christ the cornerstone and his apostles and prophets. Verse 13, when we are slandered, we encourage. We become like the refuse of the world, the offscouring of all things, until now. I wonder if that would make a refrigerator magnet. I got to be careful. Some, uh, somebody made a refrigerator magnet and gave it to us because I said something like that ironically, so I actually got one. Um, but uh, you'd have to give it some context, wouldn't you? The ref, however you look up refuge and offscouring, it's not pretty. Stuff you scrape off your shoes. So slandered here, and uh, I'll show you a, a slide. You have the PowerPoint. You can look ahead to the slide five. But we have here 
Oh, you have the printout, I mean. We have a, another part of those contrasts, but then this last statement, the apostles are like garbage. I have a statement I wrote out about this. The apostles are like filthy residue, scrapings, scum, as the two words can be translated. Both Greek words have a uh, peri, which uh, in our in English, P-E-R-I, which would be around or outside, around, to have uh, and have to do with that which are things scraped up to be discarded. Scrape it up, throw it away. Unwanted as unwanted filth. Now what it says here, of all things, that's how the world sees the apostles. These are the real apostles, the ones who saw the resurrected Christ, who were taught by Christ, who were appointed by Christ. The real apostles were seen as scum, off-scouring, filth, get rid of it. The would-be masters of the world, now false apostles, are portraying themselves as what everybody else would like to be. Grand and glorious masters of things we could only hope to master. Now, um, this is very, very sad. Very, very sad. And we need to study the Bible. Have you ever wondered why a lot of times various preachers will skip, 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 skip for 40 years of preaching and never once cover a whole chapter, every verse, or a, even a paragraph? Because if you skip around, you cannot cover the things you don't like. But this forces us to look at what God said and think about it and ask ourselves this question. Does this fit with what I'm normally taught? What I've always been taught? If not, maybe you're not hearing the whole story. Again, uh, I mentioned Dr. Gardner. He said Paul's summary is that when seen from the world's perspective, the apostles are the very least of the least. Now, here's what really takes some effort to get into our minds when we think about this. When Paul wrote this, Christendom did not exist. Paul couldn't go anywhere and find the, the Lutheran Church, the Baptist Church, the Episcopal Church, the whatever, and have dozens and dozens of choices of what version of Christendom to be part of. Because there wasn't any. He went to where there was a synagogue and they had the scriptures, and then he went to the Greeks. That were the two groups. The church exists as people are converted. Now we have Christendom, and if being honored is an important thing, we can find a group and be considered honorable in that particular version. But the challenge is for our minds to go back to the scriptures and think they didn't have Christendom, they didn't have any cathedrals, they didn't have synagogues, but they just had wherever people could gather, homes, places that were available, whatever it might be. And they didn't look very good to the people looking at them. So this is their response. 
One more statement I have here in my notes that I wrote. In context, the Corinthian church is described in comparison and ironically as filled, rich, reigning, wise, powerful, honored, verses 8 through 10. The apostles, all disgusting things. The hyper-spiritual Corinthian elitists have attitudes more like the things the wicked world loves. And here's another thing we'll find as we go through the rest of 1 Corinthians, which will take a long time, but it's worth it. They end up falling into the very sins the world typically practiced. Claiming perfection or super spirituality doesn't, in fact, sanctify. And those who think they have higher status are not thereby sanctified. We'll see that as we go on. Now, let's look at uh, a summary of this and a few verses here before we go to applications. So here are the contrasts we find right in the text. Reviled, we bless. Persecuted, we endure. Slandered, we encourage. Some of these are really unexpected, I'd have to say, because, for instance, the encourage one, I'll talk about that. Enduring persecution, we can understand that. It's hard to, how do you bless when reviled? Well, let's talk about it. I have a verse here just for us to look at. It's it's right there, and it's the admonition that Paul wrote for us to take to heart. Romans 12, 21. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. That's what we need to take away from this, what Paul wrote about that same time, around 56, 57 A.D., wrote Romans. And what we can learn from church history, besides the development of Christendom, is this. The tendency in church history, as is known, is for the church to become like the world, not vice versa. The sins of the culture have a sad way of getting themselves into people gathering in the name of Christ. It's sad, it's sad, 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 but it's an accurate portrayal of what happens. When I was a brand-new Christian in 1971, I that fall went to Bible college from Iowa State University, where I've been studying chemical engineering, I took a summer course right away, and it was called Historical Theology. In the summer course, I wanted to study what the early church fathers wrote. And so that was an interesting summer. I had a great teacher for that. But I was shocked how quickly things went off track. It didn't take long. But they were going off track while the apostles were still alive. What does that tell us? We need to cling to the Word of God. We need to study. We need to encourage one another. We need to pray for one another. We need to preach Christ. And we need to be very careful not to allow our traditions to become binding law 
on some other Christian because our traditions aren't binding, but the teaching of Christ and his apostles are. Okay? And so that you can see just by studying church history. Now let's look at 1 Peter 3, 9. You can turn there. I alluded to it earlier. 1 Peter 3, 9. Here's what it says. Not returning evil for evil or insult for insult, but giving a blessing instead. For you were called to this very purpose that you might inherit a blessing. So we don't return insult for insult, evil for evil, but give a blessing. Let's look at some of these words, this this idea of being persecuted or pursuing or whatever. Um, Galatians 1.13, let me read that to you. Galatians 1.13. For you have heard of my former manner of life in Judaism, Paul said, how I used to persecute, there's our word, the church of God beyond measure and try to destroy it. Here was the persecutor of the church confronted supernaturally by the Lord Jesus himself, stopped in his tracks and converted and called to be an apostle. And so when he says, when persecuted, we endure, he says this as a former persecutor. He did it. Nobody killed Paul while he was persecuting. The Lord Jesus saved him. He said, why are you persecuting me? Wow. I thank God for mercy. I thank God for mercy. And I do pray for for all of us that our hearts would be tender and that we realize that God has been merciful if we're willing to hear these things. God has been very merciful to forgive, to be kind. And even as in the past, many of us blasphemed his name. I know I did. God didn't bring justice to me. He took the justice on the cross himself previously and brought forgiveness by convicting me and turning me around by his grace. So... To endure means to bear with, to put up with. Yeah, we have to put up with. We live in this world, we put up with a lot. But it's nothing like what Jesus put up with. The sinless one being mocked as if he were evil. Uh, It's used several times in Paul's full speech. I told you I'd allude to this. It's a long section So don't worry, we're not going to go there. It would take too long. But if you want to jot down Paul's full speech, that's in 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians 11, 1 through 12, 13. But let me give you one example from it. 2 Corinthians 11, 4. This is the full speech. 11, 1, 2 Corinthians, different book, through 12, 13. Here is... 2 Corinthians 11.4. 4. 
For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we have not preached, or if you receive a different spirit, which you have not received, or a different gospel, which you have not accepted, you bear with this, you bear with this beautifully. It's ironic. He came by the spirit with the true gospel, preaching the true Christ, but somebody else comes with something else, they bear with that. So why not bear with Paul when he brings the truth? Because the other gospel is more appealing. Just look at it, 2 Corinthians 11.4. Oh, yeah, well, we're very open-minded. We, uh, we just want to hear everybody, and it's okay to listen, but you don't say it's okay to preach a different Christ. If you received a spirit that is a different spirit, it's not good. If it's a different gospel, it's damnable. So we do need to make distinctions about the message. That matters. And those who say the message doesn't matter are lying to you. Those who say that if you're sincere and whatever you're doing, you're doing it under the auspices of church in some tradition that's been around a long time, then you must have the right Jesus. But what about the Unitarian Jesus? I remember that we met some emergent leaders who believe everything's evolving into a glorious future without judgment. And um, my buddy asked, well, what are you going to do about the Unitarians? Because they had this principle of relationality. Well, we aren't seeing there aren't any problems. Here's what we need to do. Preach the truth. If we can know the truth, we've got to preach it. Why do you give people something else? Because it sounds better. When we gain the approval of other religious people, but, but not proclaim the truth, we've gained nothing. Slandered and then encourages parakaleo, which can mean comfort, exhort, and so on. Call alongside is what it means. So it's not for us to demand retribution now, but to ask God to give us a gracious heart. And I certainly am a needy person in that regard. So may God help me and all of us be gracious uh, to everybody around us. Now, here's the applications. They're all from some scriptures. The church cannot expect honor in the eyes of the world. Wow, that says a lot, in my opinion. I'll try to prove from scripture. We should, not, we should respond graciously to those who mistreat us. And then in the midst of suffering and dishonor, we must believe God's promise of future glory. Let's go to Luke, and we'll see here, Luke 6, 22, dishonored for Christ, that Jesus taught the same thing that Paul said that the apostles practiced. Luke 6, 22, blessed are you when men hate you and ostracize you and insult you and scorn your name as evil for the sake of the Son of Man. That's what Jesus taught, Luke chapter 6. Same sort of things 
Paul said that they were doing. This requires a lot of grace, the power of God to convict us about what's true, faith in his promises, because trusting Christ is never going to be an honorable thing in the world that's in opposition to God. A lot of the uh, theological problems that come into being are caused by a faulty eschatology and a faulty understanding of the fall of the human race. If the human race is not fallen and dead in Adam and alienated from God, then you start believing in the perfectibility of all people. And that's not what the Bible teaches. Sin separates us from God. Sin separates us from the gospel. But when we turn to Christ, we're turning to him, the sinless one, the holy one, God the creator, God the son, who came into our world, was born miraculously of a virgin. He's the unique one. It says in the gospel, especially in John, Monogatus, the only one of his kind. And he lived among us, was born of a virgin, lived a sinless life, the only one ever in human history to predict his own death, burial, and resurrection from the dead, who shed his blood, the, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, who died for sins once for all, literally placed in a grave, rose on the third day, bodily ascended to heaven after appearing to witnesses and showing them he was who he claimed to be, the Christ, the resurrected one, and teaching them on the road to Emmaus. And he ascended and he rose from the right hand of God. And so therefore, therefore, uh, Jesus Christ is the one who is providing forgiveness of sins to all who believe in him. What did he say? The repentance for forgiveness of sins should be preached to all nations, meaning ethnos groups, all people. And if you look at different words used in different gospels and accounts of this, no one's excluded. Repentance for forgiveness of sins. What does that mean? Turning from your whatever religion you like best, whatever life you like best, whatever you're trusting in, trusting in man, trusting in self, trusting in this, that, or the other thing, trusting in religion, trusting in good works, trusting in riches, whatever. Repent applies to all. Turn from that and trust in Jesus Christ alone. Only through Jesus Christ can we be born of God, forgiven sins, and given the promise of eternal life. That is the gospel. And it's preached throughout the book of Acts. The idea, by the way, that the world is going to be all excited about that. The reason the world sees things Christian and wants to join is because they don't talk about it. They don't talk about sinners needing forgiveness. They don't talk about in Adam, I'll die. They don't talk about Ephesians 2.1. You were dead. 
No, we don't want to hear that because then we can't fix our own problems. But God makes the dead alive by saving lost sinners. I'll cite 1 John 4, 5, and 6 if you want to jot this down. 1 John 4, 5, and 6. John said this, They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. The verse before in verse 4 said, You are from God, little children. Greater is he is in you as he is in the world. The seeker of movement should have died in his tracks the first time anybody suggested it. No one seeks after God. Jesus Christ seeks to save that which is lost. We preach the gospel, and it offends everybody, but it converts those who believe, and that's what it's like. Because the world won't listen to the need for Christ. Now, Acts 5.41, notice the response of the apostles. This was the early apostles before Paul, before he was even converted. Acts 5.41, it was the religious leaders, uh, temple, or the Jewish council, um, and the temple was at issue. So they went away on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for his name. Why would the apostles rejoice at being mistreated and shamed when they were living in the middle of a shame-honor culture? Shame was to be avoided at all costs, and honor was more valuable even than money. To be honored was everything. And they rejoiced they'd be considered worthy to suffer shame. Why would they do that? Because the one who had done miracles that no one else could do, Jesus Christ, the unique one, was willing to suffer shame at the hands of both the Romans and the Jewish leadership. So everyone's implicated in this. But it was for a greater good to bring salvation to the Jew first and also the Gentile. They rejoiced. They were dishonored for Christ. We don't look for dishonor. We want to treat people right. But it happens. It is a myth. This is my statement. It is a myth to claim that we can make the fallen world approve of us by adopting teachers and by adopting teachings and practices that please religious consumers. We can't do both. We either preach the gospel or we try to come up with something the world likes as it is. And that will not happen. But the gospel will convert. 1 Peter 2.12, dishonored for Christ. So Peter, one of the apostles, was also shamed. So he would, would apply to him in the last passage we read. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. Now let's talk about that. What is the day of visitation? And different 
scholars and readers that look at this wonder what it means they would glorify God in the day of visitation. Some see this as um, they'll be converted uh, by observing your deeds, and that will make them glorify God. Others see that they will reject the message, and the day of visitation is a future day, by the way. And even if they reject the message, when Christ comes and the faith of everyone is vindicated, they'll be glor- God will be glorified even in judgment. Now, I'm going to answer that. I believe both things are true. Some people are converted through the testimony of Christians. But if you want to look at other passages about visitation, I think you'll see uh, a wider scope of this. God will be glorified both in salvation and judgment. Now, I'll just read this. Jot it down. Luke 19.44. This is a Jesus using the word visitation, same word. By the way, it's the word for our episcopos. Visitation would be God coming to see what's going on, visiting, and it could be good or it could be bad. Usually it's bad. Episcopos. So here's what it is. And they will level you. This is Jesus on his way to Jerusalem. They will level you to the ground and your children within you, and they will not leave in you one stone upon another because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. Now that word time, kairos, means crucial moment. The other one has a more general word of day. In the Bible, the day of visitation generally means judgment. So in the case here, when Jesus comes into Jerusalem and he's facing the reality that he will be rejected, no matter what's going on at the moment, he predicted it, and he laments over Jerusalem, they did not recognize the time of visitation. But there were some who are converted. So I would contend that both things happen. Most people are scandalized, and they slander Christians no matter what they do. If you think you can do enough good deeds that the world will like you, don't count on it. It doesn't happen that way. How do we know that? Because they have a different definition of what is a good deed. How do we know that? Well, some people think it's a good deed to burn down one type of clinic because it's standing there for abortions, and the other think it's a good deed to attack another type of clinic because it's there to help people with their pregnancies, and so on. Depends which one you think. So you've probably seen that. The definition of good deed isn't even the same. So you can't reconcile that because you look at things totally different, absolutely different when you're converted. Now, I realize, and I don't mean any disrespect to anyone who hears this, who's was born again at a very young age and can't remember what it was like before, who maybe can't relate experientially to being an enemy like I was and being converted. But the fact is that those who do know God always end up with a different set of beliefs 
and a different ethic. We believe it's right to honor God and that Jesus Christ and his apostles and the Old Testament taken in proper context declare what's binding and what isn't. Now, where else is this day of visitation mentioned? Isaiah 10.3, I'll read it to you. Now, what will you do in the day of punishment? In the Greek translation of the Old Testament, it has the same word, uh, visitation, and the devastation which will come from afar. So Peter, citing day of visitation, is likely referencing Isaiah 10.3. So Peter, some people see Peter as talking about conversion. Others see Peter as talking about those who now reject the gospel and don't have anything good to say about those people being born-again Christians, wherever they may be, those in Christ, they'll end up glorifying God too because God has always vindicated some will be converted. If you want to partake future glory, I've shared with you the way. Turn to Christ, trust him, believe in him, and you'll see the future glory in a saving way and know that is true now that your sins are forgiven. One last slide. 1 Peter 4, 13, 14. Before I read that and start on I want to say this. This last week, as I spent a lot of time going over and over this and contemplating it, and plus some other work we're doing for critical issues, it came to me that the only reason anybody would believe the Bible was that they truly believe that God cannot lie and everything he said is absolutely true. The glory, the promises, the hope, the joy, the perfect uh, life that will be lived is yet future. We don't see it now. We just see a down payment. If you don't believe, if you don't have faith, Abraham had faith. He never saw the anything but a grave spot in the, in the promised land. But he pleased God by faith. So we need to believe what God says. 1 Peter 4, 13 and 14. But to, but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing. Remember the apostles? They rejoiced that they were counted worthy to suffer shame or dishonor for the name. So he said, Peter says, keep on rejoicing so that it also at the revelation of his glory, you may rejoice with exultation. If you are reviled for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. If you're reviled for the name of Christ, rejoice. Peter knows what he's talking about because he was there and did that in Acts chapter 5. They were rejoicing you're considered worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. I pray that God will give us faith, courage, endurance to stick with the truth as the changeableness, the life around us, the world around us, very alarming. But we have a certain hope, and it's in Christ. And the Lord says, I, the Lord, change not. I hope that gives you something to believe and latch on to as you know the Lord as your Savior. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord. I pray that even
today your word would convict some who hear and realize this is true and place their hope in you through your son Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for what you've done for many of us who were former enemies, for people blessed to have come to know you at a very young age, and we know that we live in a world that's hostile to us. Help us not make faulty judgments. Give us wisdom and grace. I pray for the congregation that we, we would care for each other and love each other and reach out to people that need help and show, therefore, that you're at work in our hearts and lives. Thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.